0: Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time and a special episode supported by Yale University Press London. Hi, it's Violet here. This week our destination is the Jamaican town of Port Royal, the richest and wickedest city in the New World. At 11.40am on the 7th of June 1692, a horrific earthquake, followed by a tsunami, struck Port Royal, throwing ships over the collapsing buildings and ejecting corpses from their graves. Two thirds of the town sunk immediately into the sea as the sand liquefied, taking buildings with it. The town never recovered. Kingston became Jamaica's principal port and city. And today, Port Royal is a small fishing village. But the ruined remains of its heyday survive under the sea. Please look on our website, tttpodcast.com, to see images of some of the incredible things archaeologists have found there. Our guide on this dangerous journey back in time is the celebrated archaeologist John Darlington, whose obsession with ruinous and abandoned places began as a baby being pushed around the ruins of Leptis Magna in his pram. He worked for the National Trust and was county archeologist for Lancashire before taking up his current role at the World Monuments Fund. His new book, Amongst the Ruins, Why Civilizations Collapse and Communities Disappear is published today by Yale. In it, he tells the stories of lost places as diverse as ancient Assyria and 20th century St Kilda grouping them around five themes before offering some ideas for how we can avoid this kind of destruction in the future. I spoke to John last week. Welcome to Travels Through Time, John.
1: Thank you very much, delighted to be here.
0: Um, Before we start I have to ask you to tell our listeners where you are recording from today because this is definitely (laughs) a first for Travels Through Time.
1: So my, my home is actually a Uh, A 1905 Belgian clipper barge, and I'm moored just off the Thames, uh, but in in London. So uh, yeah, this is, so we're recording from from my wheelhouse, uh, as the Americans say.
0: (laughs) Well, I hope that has a positive effect on the sound quality. Today, we're going to be talking about ruin and loss and the inevitability of change over history. But it's not going to be a depressing conversation because it's also very much about renovation and adaptation. And before we begin talking about that in detail, I wanted to ask you about what you call your obsession with ruinous and abandoned places. So can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: I I can. And I I guess, I mean, this starts when I was born, unusually. I was born in, in North Africa, in Benghazi, in Libya, and my mother wheeled me around the ruins of Leptis Magna in a, a pram. And so I ascribe my my being an archaeologist to that moment in time. It's complete fabrication because we left uh, when I was six months old. So I have no physical memory of, of that moment in time, of these ruins. But ironically, we moved to Berkshire in, when I was about five or six years old and would walk around Windsor Great Park. And there, on the, the fringe of Windsor Great Park at Virginia Water, there are some transported ruins of Leptis Magna, so my memory has kind of equated the two things. So I can I can absolutely remember being in Benghazi, but of course I can't. I'm I'm just picking up this this kind of photographic image in my head from uh, from translocated ruins in Virginia Water. But I've had that obsession for years and years. This fascination with with the past, in a way which was I mean as a child, children. what superpower have you got and and the superpower range was from invisibility or being able to fly or having super stretchy arms or something ridiculous like that my superpower was always going to be to travel back in time it was always time travel as I guess many of you yeah I'm right right uh, with you on that
0: one right with you on that one were your were your parents interested in archaeology were they archaeologists
1: no, they weren't. My mother always wanted to be one, and you know, we travelled across the world. So we, we lived in Iran, we lived in uh, you know, various different countries around the world. So you know, when we were walking through the ruins of Persepolis, you know, my mother was there, going, "Oh, this is amazing!" So she took us. She took us to these places, and I think that again is one of those indelible stamps in terms of your character. You get just get into a uh, this this rhythm of of looking for the past, and then. I guess that fascination with places such as Petra or Machu Picchu where you instantly think how how did that happen why is that what what it looks like what led to that place being constructed and then what led to its uh, its ruination so that again is part of this this why if you can hear helicopters overhead this this just shows that I'm live in London <laughs> but uh, if you can't you'll just have to believe me and then I think part of Part of my thinking has always been that this is—I like to look back, so I I love to to look and imagine and to think about what's happened in the past. But it's really about how you can take some of the lessons from the past and project that into the future. That's my real interest. It's—we talk about learning the lessons from the past, and if you look on, if you Google it, you will find thousands of quotes about people saying you must learn the lessons from the past. But the reality is we probably don't, and therefore this this, this book is a, a small contribution, a very small contribution towards actually what are the practical lessons that we might learn from the most devastating of, of human events, which is the collapse or disappearance of civilizations.
0: Yes, because the last part of your book indeed is a list of, you know, of fascinating suggestions and le- lessons for the future. And I want to talk about that a little bit later, but Let's just go back to you for a minute. So you went to university, studied archaeology. Tell us roughly um, and and also what you do now.
1: So I I went to university. So uh, I went to to Lancaster University, studied archaeology there. Then I went to Birmingham University, studied archaeology again. uh, And I became an archaeologist. I sort of uh, a a field archaeologist. We we travelled as part of the university degree. You go and you dig somewhere. So we excavated in in Pavia, in uh, northern Italy, and I thought, this is fantastic, this is wonderful. There's beautiful sun, fantastic food and environment, extraordinary finds. And that really cemented the fact that to be an archaeologist was possible and intensely desirable. And then I suppose I spent the rest of uh, my digging career really down deep, muddy holes in the western Midlands of England, so it's quite a contrast from the sun and 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 glory of uh, northern Italy. Uh, yeah, so I had that that practical digging experience uh, early on in my career, uh, excavating places like Shrewsbury Abbey, Roman ruins on top of uh, Birdlip Hill in the in the Cotswolds. So a solid foundation in in excavating archaeology, and then with with any archaeological career, you have to make a decision. You either go into curatorial archaeology where you you uh, work for a local authority and and uh, work alongside new development and planning or you go into academia or you stay in digging and i decided to go into the curatorial route and became county archaeologist for Lancashire which uh, i thoroughly enjoyed uh, and then the kind of final step before moving to world monuments fund which is where i work now is that i i decided that it was it was wonderful sort of being a curatorial archaeologist and trying to encourage people to to preserve the past. But actually what I really wanted to do was to to feel what it was like to actually do that, to make the decision. So I, I moved to the National Trust and became director for the National Trust in the northwest of England. Uh, not Not in archaeology at all, but general management. And there you had to make decisions about how do you preserve and conserve the past and where do you let things go. And then the final move was here to World Monuments Fund, where I lead a small charity part of World Monuments Fund, which is based out of New York. And we essentially uh, look after irreplaceable heritage across the world. So I have the best of all worlds, really.
0: It sounds like an amazing job. And I imagine it involves a lot of travel flying around the world to different archaeological sites.
1: Prior to COVID, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, COVID obviously put a bit of a, a dampener on that. But uh, yes, we're, we're beginning to travel much more. And I've, I've had the, the pleasure of leading various projects in, in Iraq and in uh, and in uh, Lebanon and uh, uh, places across the Middle East. So yes, it, the opportunity to travel is, is uh, a great appeal. And it allows me to see the places that I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, your book is so wide ranging. It really is. Well, the first chapter is prehistoric settlements in Ireland, and then you talk about St Kilda in the 20th century, Easter Island, the destruction of the Summer Palace in China. And I wondered, how did you choose? So you, I think you, you, there was 17 in total different sites, is that right? How, how did That's you correct, yeah. decide which ones to go for?
1: So I, I think I really started with the themes. So I started with obviously knowing a, a much larger proportion of sites and thinking about what were the reasons for the collapse of civilizations or historic societies. And so once you start to build these five themes, and the book is very much uh, built along the lines of, of, of the themes, then you can start to think, well, which are the best stories which can tell, which can tell the story of those themes? So the themes are uh, climate change, uh, they are war and conflict... Natural hazards, they are economic disaster and human error, and so those five things underpin all the stories. And and the, for me, the really important thing is they underpin all the stories which are about the past. But if you look at the present day, they underpin many of the the, the 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 challenges that we're going through in the present day. So this again is that that real need for me to to bring the past into the present and then how it helps us in the future. Yes, so so that that's how the the stories group. So it started with the themes, and then I really wanted something which gave us a bit of uh, variation. So I didn't want just to concentrate on the collapse of Sumeria, which is one of the stories, uh, but I wanted sort of big civilization collapse versus actually a single building and what that means for a, a type of of heritage. So I chose Bodenzer Hall in Staffordshire, which tells the story essentially of the the the, the disappearance of the English country house in, in the early 20th century. So I go from big to small. I try and pick geographically some variations. So Rapa Nui, Easter Island, all the way through, as, as you've said, to uh, the Summer Palace in China. Uh, and I try and pick uh, chronologically a variation. So yeah, as the, the, the Neolithic and Bronze Age in the Sperrin Mountains of Northern Ireland all the way through to uh, the 1966 and the Cultural Revolution, so big variety. That's kind of again, I wanted to, I wanted to have that variation of time and tempo and place because I think it just makes for a more interesting storytelling.
0: Absolutely. And your so your five themes that you talk about were uh, climate change, natural hazards, human disaster, war, and economy. So can you just briefly take us through? those why you chose them how they sort of work
1: so so yes so i mean climate change is very much on on everyone's lips at the moment as it should be uh and that underpins so many of these stories so even even though i've grouped them in three in the five themes a lot of the stories cross over there's there's actually one of the, the findings from my behalf was that uh, there's rarely a single reason why civilizations collapse. It's always multiple reasons, and climate change is inevitably part of that. So, so for climate change, I was looking both at the uh, historical climate change because our climate has always changed, yeah. uh, and and how humans react to that change, which in the case of the Sperrin Mountains was uh, to actually exacerbate change and to kind of change the natural environment. Uh, all the way through to uh, how we've impacted upon the climate and therefore the change, you know, the the acceleration of of the impact of climate. So climate change is a big one, and I, I pick up stories uh, from the North uh, Arctic coast in Canada, through to the Sparrow Mountains, which we mentioned, and to the the Garamantes Empire in in Libya. And then we, I look at uh, natural hazards, and this is. This is around those singular events which can completely destroy a place. And obviously Vesuvius and Pompeii, and we're very aware of that. And we perhaps will go on to this in more detail yes, with my absolutely. selected story. <laughs> but there are other ones. There's, there's a volcanic eruption in Montserrat, uh, a very recent one, but which has essentially made half the island out of bounds and led to... the the transportation of of huge numbers of Montserratians to other parts of the world and war is a very obvious category and again we see it today Uh, but I take us back to uh, the Neo-Assyrian Empire in northern Iraq where we explore what happens when an invading group successfully obliterates the the cultural identity of of everything that went before it and they do it in a very very visible way this is the babylonians uh, on the the assyrians uh, but it's a story repeated uh, twice more with the the destruction of uh, assyrian heritage through really through through my profession through antiquarians visiting and taking away the, the remains of that heritage and then uh, in 2015, 2016, 2017 the impact of ISIS who do exactly the same thing eradicating earlier cultures because they don't doesn't align with their their theology and their thinking. So so war is is another subject and there's a variety of stories about that. We look at human error and or, or human circumstances so for this I pick up stories such as the impact of disease on very isolated society. So you mentioned St Kilda at the beginning. and uh, St Kilda, one of the most isolated places, well, the most isolated places in the British Isles, and a place where the population had no natural immunity. So the moment you get more interaction with, uh, with visitors, then the impact of disease is, is felt far, far greater. Uh, it's the same story actually picked up in Rapa Nui uh, in Easter Island in the Pacific as well. And then, then the final stories are about economic uh, influence and economic disaster. And we range from what's happened in the Atacama Desert, where fertiliser saltpeter is being mined in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And that economy actually completely underpins the Chilean economy. Uh, for the for for that period of time, but then the 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 disaster which or the impact which is felt there is of the invention of, of artificial fertilizer, which then means the the natural goods are just not required anymore, so that the economy tanks. So it's a those those are just a, a small taster. Of some of the, the stories in the book.
0: Wonderful and one of the things um, which I think we're going to touch on later with regards to the sea but one of the things that struck me very much was how particularly in the natural hazards category you get these moments of intense destruction, volcanoes, earthquakes. At the same time they sometimes preserve so if you think about Pompeii, you know, the city was destroyed, but it was also preserved by the ash. And we have, you know, it, it's preserved in a way that other Roman cities aren't. And it's also, it, it was the same, similar story with regards to the peat, but obviously with not not with a sort of instantaneous thing that happened. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Because um, I thought that was a very interesting feature.
1: Yeah, I, I, th- I think, I mean, the peat story is... is... Absolutely part of that, and it's exactly the same as this, this idea of covering up with, with water, but covering up with peat. And the, this is a game from the story about the Sperrin Mountains in Northern Ireland, and essentially you have a whole civilization, if you like, which is hidden beneath the peat, which has grown up since the since the Iron Age, the late Bronze Age, the Iron Age, over the top of a a Bronze Age landscape or landscapes. So you have this uh, this hidden landscape, which we all, you know, we look at peat and we think, oh, that's it's peat. But actually underneath it you have, as I say, the prehistoric ceremonial landscape comprising of countless stone circles and stone alignments. Uh, very much the, like the ones that you'd see, but on a much smaller scale in parts of England and and Brittany, but they're preserved underneath the peat. So it's it's there's a, there's this hidden world out there, which which echoes not just in Northern Ireland but in other places. Uh, one of the the other topics I talk about is the permafrost, which covers huge tracts of of the Northern Hemisphere, and trapped within the permafrost and preserved by the permafrost. So this this, this permanently frozen ground, of which the top couple of centimetres, five centimetres thaws every year, but beneath it, it's, it's permanently frozen, actually also freezes organic material, which you just don't get if the ground isn't frozen. So again, extraordinary levels of preservation, but the moment you start to alter the balance that of that, so as the peat disappears or the permafrost melts, then that that heritage, that archaeology, begins to disintegrate, to blow away, to to turn to mush and it it goes. So it's very fragile but it's there.
0: It's a bit like the story of the library in Herculaneum of the scrolls you know and then they found the scrolls but of course the minute they took them out they disintegrated. And you also mentioned, of course, and we've we've talked about I've talked about this on previous podcasts, the um, development of de- technology and the role that that's playing in revealing these, for example, hidden landscapes underneath the peat. So, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Uh,
1: the peat, peat is always difficult because it's 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 essentially waterlogged. So, your ability to actually see through a peat soil using resistivity or magnetometry, which are the classic uh, tools for 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 projecting what's underneath the ground works less effectively but new technologies such as yeah that's what i
0: talked about with um, christopher hadley a couple of weeks ago and it's just incredible the the images that you get and it's stripped away the layers on the top of the soil so you can literally see underneath
1: absolutely and and i think it also applies on a much bigger scale as well which people uh, if you go to cambodia for example and you map through lidar the landscape which is hidden under tree cover you can see through the trees. So something which will take you literally decades of field work. Just by flying over it, you can effectively remove the trees and see the archaeology uh, that sits below you at a, at a much greater scale. So it is... It's And don't get me started on technology, because DNA is also another thing which is going to change our the way in which we think about the past uh, and proving but and disproving countless theories.
0: It's so exciting, isn't it? It I mean, is you not know, it there, you know some people must think oh well you know archaeology they've found everything there is to find and you know it's it's all about the distant past but actually it's evolving at such a fast rate
1: yeah absolutely and we see more you know the technology and science allows us to see more in the soil it allows us to see more from different perspectives so i mean if you if you went back to to the antiquarian period their definition of the past or what they were interested in might have been Roman ruins and that was it forget Mm. forget the medieval stuff let alone the industrial stuff which sits on top of it and now you think of what we consider to be uh worthy of investigation it's it's down to it's down to your DNA strands which you can get from a bit of saliva so it's you go from Roman ruin to a, a, a DNA sample and there's a huge range in between that
0: Yeah, amazing. Well, I think now we must um, strap ourselves in to our time machine. And um, I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests, which is, of course, if you could visit a year in history, which year would it be?
1: So I'm, I'm going to go back to 1692. And I'm going to go somewhere nice and warm. So I'm going to Jamaica in
0: 1692. That sounds lovely. Although, maybe once we get there we might regret it. Um, so can you just give us a, a brief uh, background of, of what's happening in Jamaica in 1692? I know that William and Mary are on the throne of England and Scotland. Tell us what's happening.
1: So we're we're in Jamaica. We are in the capital of Jamaica which is Port Royal. So it's a, a thriving town which sits at the end of a uh, a ten-mile spit of land on the south of the island, so it's it's precariously perched in this wonderful place for a harbour. And the, the, the history so far of this island is that the English have arrived in 1655. Uh, they've arrived as part of uh, Cromwell's western design to oust the Spanish from the from the Carib- Caribbean and uh, to sort of superimpose that Protestant thinking on the world as well as the economy. Cromwell, against his advisers' advice, sends uh, Admiral William Penn, and who's the his father is the founder of uh, Pennsylvania, and Robert Venables as his uh, admiral and his general to go and uh, disrupt and take uh, the Spanish Caribbean. They they have a failed assault on Hispaniola. In, uh, they kind of they, they they argued between themselves. It was it was not a great mix. But what they do do successfully is they they move from Hispanola to uh, Jamaica, and they effectively take Jamaica with with very little resistance. And Jamaica then has become, uh, in by sixteen ninety two, it's become this real hub in the the English Caribbean. It's it's its location. It, it doesn't provide the gold, which is actually what everyone wanted and what the Spanish wanted originally. But that's they they never found it on on jamaica uh hence the spanish disinterest in it frankly uh but what it does do is it gives the the english a foothold in the center of the the western caribbean so you've got this amazing place which is sitting astride trade routes going from spain to the spanish main from england to again the same area of central and southern america and it's got north-south trade routes as well, going from the Caribbean north up to the, the colonies on the uh, the east coast of America. So it's beautifully positioned to, to maximise uh, this, this world. Uh, and it does maximise it. it. It totally makes the most of this position because uh, whilst the invasion goes very well initially, uh, the Spanish... Soon start to try and take back their lands, and so they make various failed attacks on on uh, Jamaica and other English-held lands at that time. And so the Governor General at the time is concerned about this. He's we we need we need more troops. So the message goes back to England: we need more troops to 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 protect this new colony. And the the troops not forthcoming. It's not a priority. Bearing in mind the chaotic state of politics in. In England yeah. at the time, it's, uh, and indeed Europe. Uh, so troops are not forthcoming. So the Governor-General instead then invites the Confederacy of the Brethren of the Coast to make Port Royal their base. So essentially privateers who attempted from Tortuga in Hispaniola to come and make Port Royal their base. So it becomes a pirate base.
0: The, there's these three terms, privateers, buccaneers and pirates. Can you just, are they all the same thing?
1: They, they blend into, some have kind of official letters of mark. So we're talking about the people who have official letters from the crown to say, actually, the privateer, you are working on behalf of the British crown. You are there, disrupt, you, know, you have our blessing to disrupt the Spanish fi- uh, fleets, uh, which are, you know, which are crossing, uh, via, uh, you know, close to the, the port of Port Royal, you have our permission to essentially to to disrupt and take their trade. That's what you're given permission to do.
0: So they're sort of official pirates then? They're,
1: yeah, exactly. I think that's the best way to describe them. But, of course, they're mixed alongside. Official pirates sometimes become unofficial pirates. and yeah. Air. So it's, it's, it's this blended world. And in return for that licence, uh, the letters of mark which they're given, essentially 25% of that goes back to the Crown, if anything they capture... Uh, 10% goes to the Admiralty and 8% goes to the Governor, typically, which leaves them roughly two-thirds of all the booty. So you have the the, the Spanish trade being disrupted by privateers and buccaneers and pirates, and the income from that and the base for that is Port Royal. So there's, again, you've got this, this thriving, dynamic place of entrepreneurialism and you know, extremes, really. And th- then you layer on top of that uh, another aspect, which is that the, the Spanish don't allow anyone else to, to trade has to always be do, done through the, tr- the Spanish system. So all taxes and revenues are the, are through trade from Spain and the Spanish colonies have to be taxed. So yet again, Jamaica and Port Royal is beautifully positioned for another disruptive English tactic of uh, actually t- cutting out the middleman, uh, trading both the to the Spanish mainland to to, to Central and Southern America without tax. So you, you you bypass the Spanish system entirely, and the revenue that you get from that you save the, the tax revenue, which is considerable. So. So the combination of uh, privateer base, uh, this this sort of nationally sanctioned tax evasion scheme, uh, which also brings an extraordinary number of goods, which stop off in Port Royal from from uh, again the Spanish mainland and from the, the American colonies back to the UK, bullion going backwards and forwards, goods going backwards and forwards, you become this, you have this this burgeoning trading hub. Uh, really, really extraordinary, and it leads to uh, the establishment. I mean, but uh, uh, Port Royal becomes a town of sort of six thousand people uh, by in our year in sixteen ninety two. It's a big place.
0: So, was it the kind of prototype free port?
1: I, th- I think you've got it spot on. Absolutely, it's and that's one of the fascinating things I, th- I find about uh, this particular story is that because of the extreme wealth that you get uh, in, in Port Royal, and, and it's a cash economy, everywhere else the economy is measured in sugar, for example. This is measured in cash. There's, there's uh, more cash, more free cash, I think the quote comes, uh, in Port Royal than there is in London. So th- these are people dealing with real money, silver and gold, and the, you know, there are as many ships docking in you know, our year in port royal as there are in the ports of plymouth and boston on the eastern uh, coast of america so it's it's this very rich place and the impact of that is that everyone has cash and everyone can buy things so that the middle classes for the first time uh, because we don't see it until 40 years later in in the uk the middle classes are able to buy porcelain to buy books so it's, it really is a, a foretaste of, uh, kind of a much freer economy, which we see later in Europe by, by at least 40 years.
2: Hello, it's Artemis here, one of the other presenters on Travels Through Time. I just wanted to let you know that this special episode is supported by Yale University Press London, who this year are celebrating 50 years of inspirational publishing, including the Little Histories series of books. So on today's podcast, Yale University Press is offering Travels Through Time listeners a special 20% discount on our guest, John Darlington's new book, Amongst the Ruins, Why Civilisations Collapse and Communities Disappear. To buy John's book for just £20 with free postage and packing, go to the Yale University Press London website, which is www.yalebooks.co.uk, search for the book and use the discount code RUINS, all capital letters R-U-I-N-S, when prompted at the checkout. This offer is valid from the 11th of April until the 30th of June 2023 and is for UK orders only.
0: Um, well let's go now to onto the streets of port royal for your first scene so describe to us what it would have been like uh, i think there's in your book there was the most fantastic quote would you read the quote for us to start us off
1: yes so so port royal is a, is a place of contrasts and there's one view of port royal which is that this is the fairest town of all the english plantations the best emporium and mart of this part of the world, exceeding in its riches, plentiful of all good things. So it has this, you know, there is there is one view of, of Port Royal. Uh, however, there is another view, which I, I think it's worth quoting, uh, because whilst you have this, this extraordinary liberal society, uh, some people don't agree with that, particularly if you, you're kind of extreme Protestant faith, and so, other other people describe it as the dunghill of the universe, the refuse of the whole creation, the receptacle of vagabonds, the sanctuary of bankrupts, and a close stool for the purges of our prisons. As sickly as an hospital, as dangerous as the plague, as hot as hell, and as wicked as the devil. Gotta love that.
0: They were so good; those <laughs> those extreme prostitutes. Where they really knew how to rant. They did. That's brilliant. And of course, we have to acknowledge that a large proportion of the population was made up of slaves who had been forcibly taken from um, Africa and who were very much part of this um, economic boom that was going on.
1: They they were entirely. Um, it, it's quite interesting looking at the the early history of the Caribbean, because the the, the sugar trade and the, the you know, terrible enslaved people which are transported across to the Caribbean, is really just the second phase of economic growth this area the first phase is all around tobacco and uh, plants like that and the the labor used for that primarily was indentured labor so people who were taken from prisons in ireland in england and transported to the caribbean uh, to work on these plantations but that model simply doesn't work so the, the arrival of enslaved peoples and obviously the tragedy and the, 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 all, of, all of that brings is and that, that that ramps up the, uh, the economic prosperity based upon the, the sugar industry. So, yes, absolutely, you have to acknowledge that. And uh, by this time, there are probably at least 2,000 slaves in Port Royal amongst the 6,000 people
0: and describe what 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 did it look like what would it have been like what, walking around the streets of port royal
1: so i think it's it's uh, raucous and chaotic and pious all all at once uh so you have uh huge numbers of uh inns i think there's one alehouse for every 10 people so a large number place where you can spend your money because that's obviously part of the 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 rhythm of this place you have obviously fine mansions for the merchants, uh, and they're five-story tall buildings made of bricks. So something which would look very similar in the East End of London, or the, uh, in London, or in in Amsterdam. So you have these amazingly um, modern buildings for their time. Uh, you have all all the the things which that population of privateers or ex-privateers and traders could want so you would have brothels and uh, shops and uh, say ale houses grog houses things like that so it, it's a very busy place and then on the other side of the coin you have those people who see their mission as to save the souls of this the the, the very sodom of the caribbean as someone else quotes it so so you have priests and uh and so on so there is uh, there are churches, there are uh, meeting houses, there is a Catholic church, and there is at least one synagogue. So you have this this something which tries to deal with the uh, the moral scruples of this corrupted population in one view, and then you have everything which serves it in the other. And you literally on the end of this spit of land, you've got this packed mini Manhattan uh, in the middle of the Caribbean. Small in scale, but it's sitting on the end of this. This this uh, this spit of land uh, and served by the boats, which can draw up very close to it. That's that's part of the appeal of uh, Port Royal is that the boats can find deep harbour. So instead of going all the way into Cagway Harbour, as it becomes, they can literally pull up uh, on the side of Port Royal uh, because the, the water is deep there. Which means they don't have to transport goods from one boat to another to get it onto land and then transport it away. So it's it's very convenient for that for that reason.
0: But that factor is going to play an important negative role in our next scene, I believe. Um, so can you take us to scene two, which I believe is the morning of the 7th of June.
1: It is, yes. It's I mean, rarely has an archaeologist got the, the luxury of having a, an exact date, but we know the exact date of this. So uh, 7th of June. And it's probably worth just spend saying a little bit about the geology of this area. So Port Royal sits at the end of this, this series of caves, so Coral Islands, which spread, stretches uh, from the south corner of Jamaica in a long spit of land, so Coral Islands, which are then supplemented by gravels and sands, which are brought down from the rivers of Jamaica and then blown west and they build up. So it has this this appearance of solid land and parts of it are solid. So that's where Port Royal sits. Uh, But it also sits on the the junction of two tectonic plates. Uh, So the Ganave plate and the Caribbean plate. And these plates, you know, come together uh, and they they, uh, something called a slip strike they come together and an earthquake occurs and we've got a scene where the we're in the house of someone called john white and he's the acting governor of jamaica and he's invited someone called the reverend emmanuel heath who's the rector of port royal and they've just had done prayers in St. Paul's Church and they're having, they're sharing a nice glass of Wormwood wine. And suddenly the ground begins. And this is this is the Reverend Emmanuel Heath speaking, says the ground began rowling and moving under my feet, uh, upon which I said, Lord, what is this? He, and that's his, to his companion White, replied very composedly, being a very grave man. It's an earthquake. Be not afraid. It will soon be over. But it increased, and we heard the church and tower fall, upon which we ran to save ourselves. So this massive earthquake, 6.5 on the the Richter scale, hits this precarious little settlement on the end of this spit of land. And the result is is multifold, really. Firstly, you get the, the, the water disappears from Kagway Bay. So the, the big bay water bit disappears completely and disappears off the coast. It gets sucked back and then it roars forward as a, a tsunami. And that, that causes significant damage, including lifting at least one of the boats over the roofs of the, the settlement. Uh, so the, the tsunami caused damage, but but perhaps the most dramatic uh, of damage is caused by the, the fact that essentially the sand liquefies. So whilst... There's some solid land upon which Port Royal sits. A lot of the town has been built out onto the sand, onto pilings, uh, to, to make more wharfage, to make more houses. And the sand is you know, has all the appearance of solid land because it's compacted. But the pressure of water brought about by the earthquake and the shaking means that the, the distribution of sand and water changes completely. And in an instant, it turns from solid land to quicksand. And literally, these buildings get sucked into, into, the, into the, the sand. They get sucked down. Quite, quite incredible. And again, there's a, there's a quote about that, which uh, is worth reading out. And this again is from Heath. No place suffered like Port Royal, where the streets with inhabitants were swallowed up by the opening of the earth, which then, shutting upon them, squeezed the people to death. And in that manner, several were buried with their heads above ground. Only some heads the dogs have eaten; others are covered with dust and earth by the people who yet remained in this place to avoid the stench. So, I mean, truly horrendous.
0: Oh my goodness! Yeah, horrific. I mean, earthquakes, as we've seen only recently, or just the the destructive power is is absolutely horrific. But this, the 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 idea of the quicksand. So has that. I mean, I guess that's not the only time that that's happened. Have there been other earthquakes where that has had that effect or did we learn the lesson in that case? The answer
1: is I don't actually know. I would imagine that combination of if you've got an earthquake which takes place in a in a, in a soil or in, in ground conditions, which are a mixture of are essentially solidified sand. Compacted sand. So I'd imagine that yes, it must have happened elsewhere, but this is undoubtedly the most dramatic and most well documented, uh, certainly in, in in the past that we have of it. So it, uh, it it literally is is completely disastrous. This this the town the town uh, disappears and uh, and all the landmarks that we recognise from it, including. The, 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 the burial grounds, the church in which they've just been worshipping, they, they literally they, they crumble and disappear. And those which don't disappear in the moment, those which don't get sucked into the sand or collapse because of the earthquake itself, uh, are so sufficiently damaged they have to be taken down and, and um, rebuilt in, in our final chapter.
0: Well, let's go on now to the, the, to the third scene, the, the horrific aftermath. Um, And of course, there's there's aftershocks and then um, 2000 more people die, don't they, because of um, disease and um, other related incidents. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes, again, again, we've got we've got this fantastic documentary record, which uh, someone says the earthquake uh, after the earthquake was a general sickness from the noisome vapors belched forth. Which swept away above three thousand persons. So, the, the not only the aftershocks, and there were aftershocks of the earthquake itself. So, time life was not safe in immediately after uh, the seventh of June. You had these aftershocks, but also so water water was or disease.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, all, all those, uh, and mm-hmm. yes, it's contamination of water is the key thing there. So the echoes of this event live on. And the reality is that Port Royal never really recovers to its its heyday of 1692. It never gets back to that. And it's interesting the commentary in in the in the aftershock of this is that again you have a, a dimension to this which are people saying, well you brought this upon yourselves because you've got this den of iniquity, because you carrying out these debauched practices of drinking and whoring and all these things, you, this is an act of retribution from, from God. And you've deserved, this is, this is, this is the impact of God's wrath upon you. Those who lived in the Caribbean are are more sanguine about it because Mm. they, they, they know earthquakes happen all the time. And I think one of the, the interesting things is the, the reason this was such a disaster, what, clearly built in a very precarious place, uh, which would always suffer from earthquakes, but also it's what, how it was built. The fact that you're trying to put European buildings into this context absolutely contributed towards the disaster. So you've got brick-built, stone-built buildings, which they, 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 they can't move. When an earthquake happens, they essentially shake themselves to pieces. And also
0: multi-storey.
1: Exactly, exactly yes, four, five stories high, this is, this is, it, it, they will always tumble.
0: But it's so tragically ironic, isn't it? Because that's been the problem in Turkey recently is a lot of those buildings were made of concrete and they were very tall. And that's one of the reasons why this particular earthquake that happened recently has had such a horrific death toll.
1: Yes, hundred percent. You're, you're, you're correct there. These, Cheaply erected concrete buildings, uh, which aren't earthquake proof, and you can earthquake buildings in a variety of different ways. But these, uh, in in southern Turkey and northern Syria, are not not earthquake protected, cheaply put up, and therefore when an earthquake happens, they got they don't have that flexibility which allows them to accommodate minor or major earthquakes, and they simply collapse. And that's that's the real tragedy uh, of. Of, that's the lesson not learnt mm. in, in southern Turkey, uh, whereas elsewhere it is. And interestingly, if you looked at building styles in other parts of Jamaica in 1692, they don't suffer the same impact. So there's a place called Spanish Town and the building designs are much lower. They are built out of wood. They're built into sort of courtyard houses, much more space. So obviously the impact of an earthquake there is negligible compared to as I said, this this high rise settlement on the end, uh, perched on the end of the spit.
0: And so then Kingston becomes the capital city of Jamaica. And do they, um, when they're building that up, do they learn any lessons? Do they try and design it so that the same thing doesn't happen again?
1: There's there's definitely an element of that, and I think that the most obvious one is is you don't you don't build over it into the bay, you don't build onto the sand. You make sure you're. Your building is built on on solid ground, so I think that's that's the main lesson learned. I think there's also something around the use of timber as opposed to brick. Uh, so you you timber is much more flexible, much more forgiving
2: yeah.
1: than a, than a solid built brick built structure. So yeah, so lessons are learned. But Jamaica is a, a place which sits on a, a earthquake. Fault line. So it, it will suffer, as do other Caribbean islands, They will suffer from earthquake.
0: So fascinating. Thank you. Um, well, I think now I just need to ask you the final question, which is if you could have picked something up as a memento from one of those scenes, um, what would it be?
1: I'd pick it up uh, and look at it and then obviously have to give it back. But there was a, a pocket watch. Uh, which was excavated because a a lot of the buildings still exist underneath the sea, as we touched on very earlier. So they've been excavated by marine archaeologists, and they found a pocket watch, a French pocket watch, uh, during excavation. And the pocket watch was stopped at the hour of 11.40. So one assumes that that's when the earthquake hit. That's when the, the watch and its keeper went into the water and it stopped. So I think if there was one thing which... Uh, described this event in all its horror, uh, as well as its kind of what it meant in terms of a pocket watch, it's a rich and valuable thing. I, I'd pick my French pocket watch uh, from stopped at eleven forty on the the morning of the seventh of June, sixteen ninety two. Such a good
0: choice, such a good choice. And so, a lot of the the of the city is still underneath the water. And I I read in your book that you know they're planning on doing tourism archaeological tourism so you can go and look at it underwater
1: you, you well i think that's that's the plan i don't know if it's materialized yet i think okay. the i mean it, it is it's it's definitely it sits there this this settlement sits there uh, underneath the sea in in its murky form as with all below ground below water archaeology and there have been at least 10 different plans by the the jamaican government to to look at this area to 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 revitalize it or to to have it uh, as a tourist destination because again it's it's on this very interesting geological line it's got amazing wildlife and it's got this heritage angle so it would make a perfect uh, place to tell the story uh, of all of those things so i think tourism is is part of its future life and
0: it is a unesco world heritage site now as well isn't it it's so-
1: it's not it's not one yet that it's, it's been it's been uh, oh, right. promoted okay. as one so it's, it's a yeah. possible a possible one so yeah uh, absolutely fascinating story in place which marks you know, just just the dramatic impact of natural hazards and i'm very careful it's not a natural disaster the disaster is all our own making we put the building there it's a natural hazard which we uh, through our own actions have created a, a human disaster
0: thank you so much this has been a really really fascinating conversation i've really enjoyed it thank you john
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: That was me, Violet Moller, speaking to John Darlington about his new book, Amongst the Ruins, Why Civilizations Collapse and Communities Disappear, which is both riveting and extremely pertinent to today's world. It's published today by Yale University Press. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, please tell your friends and subscribe on your podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.